Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the Thinking to Believe podcast. I'm excited to continue our look at the moral argument for God's existence. This is now part five in the series. We've been looking at non-theistic explanations of morality, and last time we spent the entire podcast just exploring the evolutionary perspective, that morality can be explained by evolution, and we came up with a myriad of reasons as to why that fails as a moral philosophy, especially one that would explain objective moral values. So we're going to continue on here today in part five, looking at these non-theistic explanations. We're going to look at uh, the idea that morality is just a brute fact. Uh, We're going to explore the idea that rationality uh, can ground moral values Uh, that science can ground moral values, and finally we'll look at moral Platonism as an explanation for morality. So let's start with the idea that morality is just a brute fact. Now on this view, morality just exists, and we should just accept the fact that it exists. There is no explanation. We can recognize that there are moral values, but they can't be explained. They're just there. Uh, Walter Sinnott Armstrong, he's a philosopher of ethics, he seems to hold this view. This is what he says. If God did not forbid rape, what makes rape immoral, objectively? This question is supposed to be hard for atheists to answer. What makes rape immoral is that rape harms the victim in terrible ways. The victim feels pain, loses freedom, is subordinated, and so on. These harms are not justified by any benefits to anyone. One still might ask, what's immoral about causing serious harm to other people without justification? I mean, animals do this all the time, right? If you look at the animal kingdom, forcible sexual copulation goes on all the time in the animal kingdom. Well, what's immoral about causing serious harms to other people without justification? It seems natural to answer, it simply is, objectively. Don't you agree? (laughs) So, yes, he... Uh, Synod Armstrong recognizes that there's morality. Yes, it exists objectively. Yes, I agree. The question, though, is why does it exist? And he does not provide an answer. He seems to suggest it's just a brute fact, and that should be sufficient. The positive in this view is that it affirms that morality is objective, And it believes that it's obvious that it's objective, you know, that we all have moral knowledge. With that, I can agree. And the positive of this view for an atheist is that it allows him to maintain his belief in objective morality without having to confess the existence of God. Because when you claim it's inexplicable, you can help yourself to morality without feeling the need to explain it without bringing in the God question. But there are a bunch of uh, weaknesses to this theory. I'm going to provide you with five. The first is that it's not an explanation of morality. Rather, it's a denial of an explanation. If the purpose of a moral theory is to explain morality, if if we're trying to ground morality This just skirts the issue because it says there is no explanation. It doesn't offer any grounding for morality. Rather, it just denies that any explanation is needed. 
Um, and some would say that there's no explanation possible. So when you deny that there is an explanation, then what you're denying is something called the principle of sufficient reason. The principle of sufficient reason holds that everything that exists has an explanation for why it exists. That explanation is either going to be found in some external cause, in the case of a contingent being, a contingent being is a being that did not have to exist, it's not necessary. So if a being is contingent, then the explanation for why it exists has to be in some external cause, some cause outside of the being in question. Or the other possible explanation for why something exists is that it exists by a necessity of its own nature. This is what we call a necessary being. So necessary beings exist because they have to exist. It's impossible that they don't exist. They can't not exist. Um, It's either metaphysically impossible or it's logically impossible that they would fail to exist. So when we're talking about moral truths, unless we have some reason to believe that moral truths are necessary beings— It follows that they are contingent beings, and therefore, they must have some external cause. So if moral values are objectively real, then they have to have an explanation, unless you're going to deny the principle of sufficient reason, but I do not think anyone has sufficient reason to deny that principle. So uh, I think that principle holds, and there is some sort of explanation that's required, and that explanation is going to be in some external cause. The second problem with the brute facts theory of morality is that brute facts can't be affirmed rationally. Jay Clanton argues that one has to use a form of reasoning called abductive reasoning in order to reach this conclusion that some thing is inexplicable. And the reason is, is because induction and deduction cannot prove that something is inexplicable. Uh, nor can it prove that everything's explicable. So you can't prove that through deduction and induction, so you have to use abduction. Abduction is a form of reasoning where you start with the effects in question and you reason backwards to figure out what is the best explanation for those effects. So you can have multiple hypotheses and then you Uh, weigh those hypotheses against one another to see what is the best explanation. That's abductive reasoning. And he says, if you're going to argue that there is no explanation, you would have to use abductive reasoning. You could never come to that conclusion with induction. Remember, induction is where you just uh, observe a number of features and then you draw a generalization from your observations. Uh, Deduction is where you have, you know, premises, and those premises lead logically to a conclusion. Those types of reasoning cannot get you to the idea that you know something is inexplicable. It'd have to be abduction that you would use. Um, but to conclude that a brute fact exists, one would have to reason that since there are only you know X number of possible explanations for morality, and none of those explanations actually explain morality, then morality is simply inexplicable. And Clanton says, well, the problem should be readily obvious. Abductive conclusions, by their very nature, involve 
actual explanations, not the absence of explanations. In other words, you never have an abductive conclusion, and the conclusion is there is no explanation. Abductive reasoning always takes you to the best explanation, which means it's a positive reality. You can't have the best explanation be that there is no explanation. That doesn't make any sense. So if you have to use abduction in order to, you know, of all the different forms of, of logical reasoning, if you have to use abduction in order to come to the conclusion that something is inexplicable, and yet abduction cannot lead to the conclusion that there is no explanation, since it can only lead to what is the best explanation, then that leaves no rational foundation for concluding that anything exists inexplicably, yet alone morality. All right, number three, brute facts theory is rationally unsatisfying. The person who says that morality is just a brute fact, and we don't need to explore uh, any deeper as to where it comes from or why it exists, why we have moral obligations, and, and potentially even that there cannot be an explanation for that. Uh, I think they are selling themselves short intellectually. You could ask the person who holds to this view of morality if they regularly heard a voice telling them to do you know, some X and Y, but they didn't know whose voice it was, they didn't know who was issuing the command, would they be content just to obey without ever trying to figure out whose voice it is, where it's coming from, you know, what authority they have to make such a command? Of course not. Of course, they would be wanting to know. They would search deeper. I mean, that's why this view is rationally unsatisfying, because naturally we want to know what is it that makes X right or Y wrong? Where does morality come from? Why am I obligated to fulfill these moral values? And I think that's why the brute view of morality is rationally unsatisfying. All right, number four, it provides no moral obligations. We've already said our moral experience includes moral obligations, but on this view, I mean, even if we granted that objective moral rules or values are inexplicable, why think that we're obligated to follow them? Obligations aren't the kinds of things that just hang in midair. Obligations are grounded in relationships between persons, between minds. So you can only make sense of it in those terms. But if you have to appeal to some person to explain moral obligations, though, then obviously morality becomes explicable. So the brute facts view of morality simply cannot explain why or even if we have moral obligations. And number five, it provides no moral significance. Because even if we granted that objective moral values exist as just you know these brute facts— why think that our moral choices have any significance? Why not think that there is no ultimate significance to whether we keep these moral values or we don't keep the moral values? So for those five reasons, I think the brute facts theory fails. All right, now let's look at the view that says that morality is grounded in rationality or in logic. On this view, they would say morality is logical. It just makes sense. And rational people can just see that there's a difference between good and evil. 
It's just obvious. So there's a certain sense in which it appeals to this brute facts. But they would say it's not just that it's a brute fact, but it, it makes logical sense. We can ground this in our mind. But there are problems with this. I agree that morality does make sense. Morality can be practical. Um, but I don't think you can ground morality in logic or in rationality. And here's why. Number one, it confuses moral epistemology with moral ontology. We may be able to discover what is right and wrong via rational means, in other words, epistemology, but that doesn't tell us anything about the ontological foundations of morality itself. So the you know, view that morality is grounded in rationality and logic, it fails to actually provide the grounding. It just provides a means of knowledge. It's how we come to know them. It does not tell us why they exist. Number two, logic does not lead to morality. I mean, think about it. The laws of logic don't lead you to morality. The law of non-contradiction that says something cannot be both A and not A at the same time and in the same way. How would that lead you to the moral truth that it's wrong to murder somebody? How does the law of modus ponens lead to the conclusion that it's wrong to torture babies for fun? Like, you can't get morality from the laws of logic. You can't go from the law of excluded middle to the conclusion that you shouldn't lie or that truth-telling is good. Even the atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen admits that reason will never get you to morality. Here's what he said. We have not been able to show that reason requires the moral point of view, or that all really rational persons, unhoodwinked by myth or ideology, need not be individual egoists or classical amoralists. Reason doesn't decide here. The picture I have painted for you is not a pleasant one. Reflection on it depresses me. Pure practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to morality. So rationality and logic, does that help us to, to know and reason about morality? Yes. But can it ground morality? No, it cannot. To grow this ministry, I need your prayers as well as your financial support. So if you're benefiting from this podcast and you want to see more content, then partner with me by becoming a monthly supporter. Visit thinkingtobelieve.com slash support to give via PayPal, Venmo, or Zelle. Any amount, big or small, is greatly appreciated. All right, what about science? Many are now looking to science to answer the question of why does morality exist or what is morality? And for many years, you know, scientists would say that issues of morality was beyond the domain of science and it's not something that they could answer, but that's left to philosophy and religion. But in more recent years, you have people like uh, Sam Harris and Michael Shermer who have uh, what I call scientized morality. They have tried to take the subject of morality and make it a subject of science. And they claim that science can account for morality after all. For example, Michael Shermer, he makes the case that, quote, morality involves how we think and act toward other moral agents in terms of whether our thoughts and actions are right or wrong with regard to their survival and flourishing. 
and that moral progress is real, quantifiable, and the result of our improved understanding of causality in the social and moral sciences in the same manner as our understanding of causality has progressed in the physical and biological sciences. A moral starting point is the survival and flourishing of sentient beings. In his book, uh, The Moral Landscape, Sam Harris, who's probably most famous for making a scientific case uh, for morality, he argues that, again, human flourishing, kind of as Shermer said, is the human flourishing is the uh, summum bonum of morality. So science is able to determine what is moral by measuring which human behaviors are going to produce the most human flourishing and which do not. And I think that this sort of an approach, although it does fail ultimately, as I'll argue here in a second, I think the strength of it is that it appeals to a culture like ours, because we are very scientifically minded and anything a scientist says, we're keen and you know ready to hear, ready to listen. We just sort of assume that you know they're the priests of our day, if you will, what they say is gospel. And this approach to morality also has the strength that it appears to give a a foundation for objective morality, that it doesn't leave you in subjectivity. But I think it fails for at least six reasons. The first reason it fails is that it confuses pragmatism for morality. Earlier in this series, I distinguished between two different ways in which something can be good. You can have good in a pragmatic sense, or there is good in the ethical or moral sense. Pragmatic goodness is concerned with the utility of something. You know, how well does it achieve the ends for which you, you, know, you desire? Whereas ethical goodness is concerned about a quality, a moral quality of the act itself. So pragmatic goodness is, does, does it do for me what I want it to do? And ethical goodness is, you know, is some intrinsic quality about the act itself. It has a moral property to it. Now, what Schirmer and Harris and others do consistently is they equivocate on the meaning of good, where they put forth what is morally good, what is actually just pragmatically good. Now, you can have, you know, where the two forms of goodness converge, because what is morally good is often going to be pragmatically good as well, because it's morally true and what is true often works. But these are different kinds of goodness. So you can have some act that might help you to flourish. It's pragmatic and it has a pragmatic goodness about it, but that doesn't mean that it's moral. So science, what it can do is it can provide us with a list of universal practicalities that if you follow those, it will result in, you know, human flourishing, which they'll define as the least amount of suffering, the greatest amount of happiness, however they define it, which is itself subjective. So you can come up with that list, but human flourishing isn't the same thing as moral goodness. Moral goodness is different than human flourishing. The second problem with this view of morality is that it's arbitrary. I mean, we could ask, why is it that human flourishing takes moral precedence over the flourishing of other sorts of life? 
some viruses, if they're going to flourish, they have to multiply and kill their human host. So why isn't that a moral good? So why is it that we say human flourishing is what matters the most? It seems rather arbitrary. All right, number three, it does not provide an objective standard of morality. Remember, we're trying to ground objective morality here, but this doesn't provide uh, objective morality. So you can't ground something that doesn't exist on this moral view, because flourishing does not constitute any objective standard of good and evil. I mean, if we had evolved differently, then what would make us flourish would be different as well. So this is not something that is objective. It might be universal, but as we discussed in a previous podcast, universal is not the same thing as objective. So morality is objective and transcendent, but flourishing is not. Number four, it cannot explain moral duties or moral accountability. Even if we considered pragmatic goods to be you know, genuine examples of morality, and even if we could consider these to be objective in some sense, you still have the fact that science lacks any moral authority. In the name of what should people obey these moral values that can be discovered scientifically? Out of pure self-interest? Well, that can't be the proper motivation, since many things that we consider to be morally good actually require us to deny our self-interest. I like what Amy Hall of Stand to Reason had to say. She says, sure, there might be an objective way for the collections of molecules we call humans to live that will enable those humans to live longer or maximize their pleasurable feelings, but there is certainly no obligation to do so and nothing to say that either living longer or having pleasurable feelings is something that ought to be done. They're merely possibilities. Fifth problem with this view is that there are many counterintuitive examples. So we can imagine different acts that may help a person or a species to survive and to flourish, but are still nonetheless morally evil. So for example, raping females. Clearly that could help you to uh, ensure that your genes get in the next generation, that uh, the species would survive. But that pragmatic concern could not make rape something that is moral. Likewise, cowardice, that can, ex can uh, enhance one's survival. That can make you flourish. I mean, if people are that are cowards, they don't engage in risky behaviors like war, well, then they're going to live longer and that's going to increase their satisfaction because dying sucks. So, but yet we don't consider cowardice a moral virtue. And yet I think you could argue scientifically that cowardice does result in more human flourishing. So I think it's wrong to assume that pragmatic goodness is identical to moral goodness. The moral virtue of an act is a separate question from whether or not it helps us to flourish. And finally, number six, science has provided multiple moralities. Measuring human flourishing is subjective, and that's why a scientific approach to morality is always going to yield competing uh, moral claims. 
I think John Gray uh, is worth quoting at length on this point. Here's what he says. It's probably just as well that the current generation of atheists seems to know so little of the longer history of atheist movements. When they assert that science can bridge fact and value, they overlook the many incompatible value systems that have been defended in this way. There is no more reason to think science can determine human values today than there was at the time of Heckel or Huxley. None of the divergent values that atheists have from time to time promoted has any essential connection with atheism or with science. How could any increase in scientific knowledge validate values such as human equality and personal autonomy? The source of these values is not science. In fact, as the most widely read atheist thinker of all time argued, these quintessential liberal values have their origins in monotheism. The new atheists rarely mention Friedrich Nietzsche, and when they do, it is usually to dismiss him. This can't be because Nietzsche's ideas are said to have inspired the Nazi cult of racial inequality, an unlikely tale given that the Nazis claimed their racism was based in science. The reason Nietzsche has been excluded from the mainstream of contemporary atheist thinking is that he exposed the problem atheism has with morality. It's not that atheists can't be moral, the subject of so many mawkish debates. The question is which morality an atheist should serve. A liberal morality that applies to all human beings can be formulated without any mention of religion. Or so we are continually being told. The trouble is that it's hard to make any sense of the idea of a universal morality without invoking an understanding of what it is to be human that has been borrowed from theism. The belief that the human species is a moral agent struggling to realize its inherent possibilities is a hollowed-out version of a theistic myth. The idea that the human species is striving to achieve any purpose or goal presupposes a pre-Darwinian teleological way of thinking that has no place in science. Empirically speaking, there is no such collective human agent, only different human beings with conflicting goals and values. If you think of morality in scientific terms as part of the behavior of the human animal, you find that humans don't live according to iterations of a single universal code. Instead, they have fashioned many ways of life. A plurality of moralities is as natural for the human animal as the variety of languages. So in other words, when you get rid of God, you have nothing left but humans and their desires, and that's going to yield different moral systems. So science cannot provide you with a you know single objective moral system is going to provide you with multiple moralities. So science cannot possibly ground the good. It is not grounding objective goods. It does not provide you with any sort of moral duties or accountability. It fails as a moral theory. All right, let's move on to the final non-theistic moral theory that we will examine and then we will end out this episode. And this final moral theory is called moral Platonism. Moral Platonism is the view that moral values are abstractions, that they exist in this platonic realm of eternal abstract objects. Uh, and I think that this view of all the different views we've looked at is probably the most credible. And next to theism, I would say it's the best explanation of morality. 
Um, one, because it actually does ground objective moral values. It's not a subjective version of morality, and it does provide a grounding. So there's this you know, realm of abstract objects and moral truths, moral values exist in this realm. Now, obviously, you still have to explain where that moral realm came from. So there's a deeper ontological investigation that would be needed to ground these moral values. But at least it explains how these moral values exist in the real world. They exist in this platonic realm. But there are problems with this theory. It cannot fully account for the human experience of morality. So let's go through some of these problems. Number one is why think abstract objects even exist? Those who hold to this view often just take it for granted that abstract objects exist. But there are many thinkers who deny that there are abstract objects. So if you're going to hold to moral Platonism, you would first have to argue for the existence of a a realm of abstract objects. And then you would have to provide some sort of arguments to think that moral values are objects in that realm. And yet I maybe there are some thinkers who have tried to to argue for um, you know placing moral values in that realm. And there's definitely thinkers who have argued for Platonism, but I do not think the arguments for Platonism uh, succeed. I'm personally persuaded that Platonism is false. I hold to a view uh, generally called nominalism, which is the idea that you know, what we call abstract objects are really just thoughts. They don't exist in any mind-independent way. So unless you can convince somebody that abstract objects exist and that moral values are in the realm of those abstract objects, this theory is never going to get off the ground. Second problem is that I don't think moral values are abstractions. I mean, how could it be that a moral value exists in some abstract way, independent of a mind? So think of something like justice. It makes sense to think of some person or someone as being just, but does it make any sense to think that justice is an entity that exists all by itself? I mean, think about it. The concept of justice is not itself just in the same way that quickness is not quick, love is not loving, laziness is not lazy. These concepts don't exist as abstractions. They only make sense in the context of minds. Someone has to be just. Justice is something that is exemplified by a person, but an abstraction of justice? That doesn't make any sense. Number three, why well, think some abstract objects have this unique property of possessing moral value? You know, those who believe in Platonism will say that there is, you know, potentially an infinite number of abstract objects. So my question would be then, if there's all these abstract objects, why is it that some of them have this additional value of having moral truth? And why is it that we have a moral duty to obey some of these abstract objects, but not others? Of all the abstract objects that exist, why do we have to obey these particular abstract objects? So moral Platonists I think they have a difficult time explaining why some abstract objects would have this unique and you know queer property of possessing moral value, but other objects like the number two don't. 
Number four, moral Platonism cannot ground moral duties. So even if it could be shown that abstract objects exist, that moral values are part of that abstract realm, and that uh, you know these and uh, proper, or I should say these uh, these abstract objects, namely the moral values, they alone are invested with moral qualities. You still wouldn't be able to explain why it is that we have any obligation to obey them. I mean, why should we think that I am beholden to some abstract object in some abstract realm, that I am to obey the values that it lays out for me? Um, Why not ignore them? I mean, if I choose to, why not? Are, Are they going to enforce themselves? No. So why should I care that there are abstract objects, you know, that are, have moral value? All right, number five, moral Platonism is unable to discriminate good from evil abstractions. I mean, these abstractions that are said to exist, they're not just good things. It's not just kindness and fairness and love, but there's also hatred and selfishness and greed. Those would also be abstract objects. So why is it that I have an obligation to obey kindness and fairness and love, but I don't have an obligation to obey hatred and selfishness and greed? Like, how is it of this indiscriminate realm of, of abstract objects that certain abstract objects happen to have moral qualities, and I'm only morally obligated to the good ones? In fact, how do you even distinguish between which ones are good and bad? Who's to say they're just abstractions? What is it that even makes kindness good? There's no explanation of that in moral Platonism. It exists in some abstract realm, but why is it considered good? Why is kindness good and hatred evil? Moral Platonism is not able to explain that. The last problem with moral Platonism is that it can't explain how we are aware of these abstract moral objects. See, the defining feature of an abstract object is that it has no causal relations with anything. That's the one defining feature, the sine qua non. It's, it's the that without which not. You, if, an, if an object is abstract, that means it has no causal relations to anything in physical reality. So you can have an instantiation of an abstract object in physical reality, but the abstract object is not what caused it. So the number two, for example, doesn't cause anything. It just exists. It it stands in no causal relations. So if abstract objects are causally inert or causally impotent, they're powerless to cause anything, how could we ever come to know that they exist? They can't be revealing themselves. That would be to stand in a causal relationship. So how do we know that these moral values exist in this abstract realm? Remember, our basic moral knowledge is known to us via these moral intuitions that we have. So how do we know that if these this realm of abstract objects is not communicating to us? And if it was communicating to us, it wouldn't be abstract because it would be standing in a causal relationship. And I think it's a little bit odd to think that somehow we would just have ingrained in us through an evolutionary process knowledge of these abstractions when these abstractions, you know, aren't in any causal relationship to us. So I think at the end of the day, in assessing moral Platonism, it can only explain 
one aspect of our moral experience, and that is the objective nature of morality. But other than that, it can't explain why we have a moral duty to obey these moral values. It can't explain why we feel guilty when we violate them, you know, our sense of moral accountability. I think all of these aspects of our human experience of morality can't be made sense of on moral Platonism or any of the other views that we have looked at so far. Some of the views might explain, you know, a little here and there, but none of them can explain the totality of the human experience. And I'd say most of them explain either nothing or, you know, one or two aspects, and that's about it. So I think it's safe to say that non-theistic moral theories fail to solve the grounding problem. They may you know, help us with moral epistemology, but they don't help us with moral ontology. They don't explain the full breadth of the human experience. So we're going to have to look at some other theory if we hope to solve this problem of grounding. And of course, where we're going to go next in our next episode is looking at the theistic explanation for morality. And I will argue that theism uh, best explains why morality exists. To read my latest thoughts, visit the Thinking to Believe blog at thinkingtobelieve.com. Or if you'd like to comment on today's podcast, you can do so at the Thinking to Believe Facebook page. You can also send me any questions you might have at thinkingtobelieve at gmail.com. Until next time, keep thinking to believe.